Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. In the sixth episode of our series, History of Ideas, David talks about Gandhi's Hind Swaraj, which made the case for Indian independence, but also for a completely new way of doing politics. New, at least, for Western societies. Could they cope? Not really. Talking Politics, History of Ideas is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading literary magazine. After each episode, continue your exploration of the history of ideas in their unrivaled archive of essays and reviews, films and podcasts, and find out more about how a subscription to the LRB can be an indispensable home learning and student resource by heading over to their website, lrb.me forward slash ideas that's lrb.me forward slash ideas so far all the authors that i've been talking about in this series have very much belonged to the western tradition they have all with one exception been dead white men and the exception mary wollstonecraft is a dead white woman Even Marx and Engels, who wanted to more or less overturn the entire social order of their societies, were doing it from within the intellectual tradition that had created that social order, the scientific revolution, the series of ideas through the 17th, 18th and 19th century that built the world that they wanted to sweep away. Today I'm going to be talking about someone who does not come from inside that tradition. Mohandas or Mahatma or M.K. Gandhi, who was born in British India and who lived a life that was a long way removed from the kinds of lives that I've been talking about and who thought and expressed ideas that are just as far removed from many of the rationalist, mechanical, modern ideas that run through in different ways all the thinkers I've been talking about, even the romantic ones. But Gandhi does not come from completely outside the world that he's eventually going to reject. Gandhi was a lawyer, and he trained to be a lawyer in London. He went to what was then called, and is still called, UCL, University College London. And then he was called to the bar at the Inner Temple, The inner temple is not exactly outside of the society in which it is one of the leading legal institutions. Gandhi was very widely read in Western literature and the Western tradition, including ancient literature. He started, as I have not started, with Plato, but he read fiction too. He read the great texts. He supplemented all of those things he was going to bring outside of the West to a deep understanding of the West itself. The piece of writing that I'm going to be talking about, Hind Swaraj, which was written and published in 1909, has some things, not many, but some things in common with the piece of writing I talked about last time, the Communist Manifesto, 
One thing it has in common is that it was written very fast. Communist Manifesto in maybe six or seven weeks, Hind Swaraj in a matter of days. It was written by Gandhi on a trip that he took from England, from Southampton, where he had been, back to South Africa, where he was then living, where he had become a leading, not just lawyer, but what we would now call civil rights activist. He wrote it on that sea voyage as an intervention in immediate debates about Indian independence. So it also has some of the urgency of the Communist Manifesto. It was written quickly because the time was urgent, because there was a feeling of change in the air, because Gandhi wanted his ideas to be known then. It's also, as I said of the Communist Manifesto, a deeply uncompromising piece of writing. The style is different, not least it's written as a kind of dialogue. The Communist Manifesto was written by two people, as though they were one person. Hinswaraj was written by one person, as though he were two people. But it's clear which side Gandhi is on in those debates, and he is uncompromising in those debates. Just like Marx and Engels were trying to warn people in the movement to which they belonged, early radical workers' communist politics, not to fall for the great lie. So Gandhi was trying to warn people involved in the various different movements pushing for different forms of Indian independence from British imperial rule, independence from the Raj, not to fall for what he saw as the great lie. And the lie was, in some respects, similar to the lie as understood by Marx and Engels, though, as I'll tell you in a moment, in most other respects, it was completely different. But Gandhi's understanding shared with Marx and Engels a suspicion of that feature of modern political life as the organisation of modern societies through politics that was inherently double. He didn't think you could compromise with an idea that had two faces to it, because he thought inevitably the bad would drive out the good. So in his case, what he was warning against were attempts to compromise with the British, to compromise with British imperial rule, because after all, British imperial rule was absolutely that two-faced version of modern politics. It was both coercive, it was oppressive, it was exploitative but it was dressed up in the language of law, including the law in which Gandhi himself was trained, British ideas of the common law and the rule of law. It was dressed up in the language of representation. It was dressed up in the language of security and freedom. The British imperialists liked to believe of their imperial rule, that it was at some level good for the people over whom they were ruling and the good was expressed in the familiar language of the good side of modern politics. And that, for Gandhi, was a lie. And trying to cherry-pick, to take the bits of British rule that might work better if the British could be got rid of, to construct a kind of hybrid Anglo-Indian form of politics that took the best of Indian civilization and Indian traditions and married them to the best of British politics, and British rule wouldn't work. The hybrid wouldn't work because the hybrid itself 
was a manifestation of what was wrong with modern ideas of politics. And what was wrong with modern ideas of politics is that they were mechanical and artificial. The doubleness was, in a sense, Hobbesian doubleness. It was having constructed something artificial with a deliberate purpose, which was coercion, and then presenting it as though it was something organic or natural or true. Gandhi rejected it. Gandhi also had almost more than Marx and Engels, a kind of prophetic sense of the power of that mechanical, artificial society and that mechanical, artificial world, the world that had been brought into being by the marrying of the power of the modern state with the power of modern productive industry. There is a passage in Hind Swaraj which is comparable to the passage in the Communist Manifesto where Marx and Engels express their relative astonishment at what capitalism is capable of, just what it can conjure out of the earth, populations, new forms of transportation, new forms of communication, the way in which it connects people as well as dividing and exploiting them. But Gandhi's passage feels more prophetic because Marx and Engels describe the world of 1848, which is relatively remote to us now, when we think of the most amazing things that modern industrial capability can achieve. We don't tend to think of canals. We don't tend to think of irrigation. We don't tend to think of the telegraph. We tend to think of the world of digital technology. So I'm just going to read a short passage from Gandhi's Hind Swaraj, in which he describes the world that he thinks is coming if we carry on down the path of modernity, the path that begins with the modern state and ends. Well, this is where it ends. Gandhi writes, Formerly, men travelled in wagons. Now they fly through the air in trains at a rate of 400 and more miles a day. This is considered the height of civilization. It has been stated that, as men progress, they shall be able to travel in airships and reach any part of the world in a few hours. Men will not need the use of their hands and feet. They will press a button, and they will have their clothing by their side. They will press another button, and they will have their newspaper. A third, and a motor car will be waiting for them. They will have a variety of delicately dished up food. Everything will be done by machinery. That was written in 1909. It is one of the more prophetic accounts of the 21st century, written at the start of the 20th. After all, it does describe the world of both Uber and Uber Eats. You press a button, you have a motor car by your side, you press another one, and someone brings you delicately dished up food. But Gandhi does not have Marx and Engels's sense of awe about this even if he does have far greater prophetic powers. Marx and Engels actually didn't have much by way of prophetic powers. They were constantly foreseeing things that didn't happen, particularly in the world of politics. They tended to exaggerate political turmoil, and they tended to overstate the nature of the crises they lived through, starting in 1848. In 1848, Engels wrote to his brother, 
of the Chartist movement in England, which was the English version of the 1848 revolutions. It had been bubbling up for a while, but it looked like Chartism's time had come. And he said, I bet you anything you like, by the end of this year, Britain will have a Chartist prime minister. And by the end of 1848, Britain didn't even have any more Chartist MPs. Marx and Engels were not good at prophecy. Gandhi, in a weird sort of way, was, although actually this isn't his prophecy. The person he almost certainly took these ideas from, and this is a sign of the ways in which he was both outside and inside the Western tradition, was E.M. Forster, the English novelist, who wrote a famous short story, it's famous now, probably more famous now than it was at the time, called The Machine Stops, in which he foresaw a world in which machinery and interconnecting tubing allows human beings to communicate with each other from inside their little pods so that they are able to experience not just human communication, but a wide range of pleasures, artificial pleasures, from inside an entirely sealed-off world. And it's a world in which they become wholly dependent on the machine, the network of interconnecting tubes that bring them together with all the other people, but also mean that when the machine stops, human communication stops, so that human beings become dependent on machinery. And that story by Ian Forster was published in 1909, and it was published in a magazine that was almost certainly in the ship's library when Gandhi was making his trip back to Cape Town. And it's my guess, though it's only my guess, that he read it, and he foresaw the world of Uber and Uber Eats, because E.M. Forster foresaw that world. There is something slightly weird about the thought that E.M. Forster and Gandhi saw the future much better than Marx and Engels. In almost all other respects, Gandhi is nothing like Marx and Engels. Indeed, many of the most fervent critics of Hind Swaraj, Gandhi's uncompromising plea for Indian independence without doing a deal with the British, were Marxists. Not because they wanted to do a deal with the British particularly, but because they were deeply suspicious of Gandhi's fundamental analysis of how society works. The basic units of Marxist analysis were not Gandhi's units of analysis. For Gandhi, politics was not about class. Politics was primarily about the individual. The individual who in the Marxist idea of how politics works is always transcended by the class to which he or she belongs. For Gandhi, the individual was the transcendent unit of political life. And we were, as individuals, at some level, responsible for our fate. And Hind Swaraj, the idea of Indian independence, rests on an idea of personal independence, personal self-sufficiency. Politics is nothing for Gandhi if it can't be rooted in what individuals decide for themselves. At the same time, Gandhi was not, as Marxists were, at least conventional Marxists ought to be, a deep internationalist. He contrasted what he saw as the virtues and the values of Indian civilization against what he saw as the defects of Western civilization. Western civilization 
which was artificial and mechanical, Indian civilization, which at least had the possibility of being something else. He did reject, as many Marxists have rejected, the idea that political representation, the foundational idea of the modern state, is the basis for any sustainable politics. But he rejected it quite explicitly because it was too mechanical. Marx and Engels never had a problem with things being mechanical. They quite liked machinery. They didn't like representation because they thought it was a kind of lie about the nature of power in a capitalist society. Gandhi rejected political representation because it was a lie about who we are as individuals. The representative, he says, particularly the representative in Parliament, particularly the representative in the British Parliament, which was held up as the mother of parliaments, the one to which all other parliaments should aspire. That representative, by definition, was living a lie. Because that man, and it almost always was back then a man, could not be true to himself. Because that man had to serve what Gandhi had come to know as the party machine. Politics itself had become mechanical. Politics itself had become a kind of clanking machine. And it was therefore, in its own terms, no different from the other kinds of machines that Gandhi thought detached people from their true selves. Among these, he included trains, as he described in that passage that I read, the trains that could travel up to 400 miles a day, or maybe even quicker. People could fly around the countryside. People could communicate with each other just by pressing a button. Gandhi was suspicious of modern medicine and the ways in which it treated the human body as just another instrument to be mended. He was suspicious of modern conceptions of the law and the rule of law in which he was trained. It was all detached from genuine human experience because it was all, in one way or another, a kind of representation of an artificial form of life. But politics stood at the apex of that. Gandhi thought that political representatives were either deceived or self-deceived. They either knew that they didn't believe what they were saying and therefore they couldn't be trusted, or they didn't know that they didn't believe what they were saying, in which case they truly were fools. And for politics to be genuinely sustainable, there had to be some way to emancipate it from those forms of political representation, which were a lie. Politics for Gandhi needed to be honest. It needed to be truthful. Ideally, it needed to be grounded in face-to-face human interactions. Politics could not function if individuals hand over their judgment to representatives to take decisions on their behalf. Therefore, politics could not function in Gandhi's terms, on the basis of the modern state. But the most fundamental difference between Gandhi and Marx and Engels doesn't relate to the idea of the state or the idea of the individual. It relates to what the state does. It relates to violence or coercion or force. Gandhi, above all, believed in non-violence. He believed in the possibility of uncompromising political change. He believed in the possibility of overturning an established order 
and replacing it with something which could be true to itself and therefore in its own terms was quite new. He believed in the idea of Indian independence, which would be in its own terms a kind of revolution. But he did not believe that the way to get there was to take the force, the power of the state, its coercive power, and turn it against your enemies. He did not believe in violent revolution. And Marx and Engels did. Engels said of some of his critics and their critics within the movements to which they belonged, who wanted something more like a peaceful revolution, who had an idealised notion of how political change was possible. Engels said anyone who believes in a non-violent revolution has never seen a revolution. He thought when you saw political change in action, you knew it was only possible by using the instruments of coercion against your oppressors. But you might say of Engels that anyone who believed that all revolutions had to be violent had never seen Gandhi. Gandhi's idea of non-violent change, of what is sometimes called passive resistance, what we now probably call civil disobedience, was integral to his thought because it integrated the different parts of his thought. The goal was not to turn the coercive power of the state against itself or against your oppressors. The goal was to invite the coercive power of the state to reveal itself for what it really is. It was to take away the veil that's overlaying the power of the state in the name of liberal or other freedoms and reveal its coercive heart and then to see if the coercers can live with that. So again, it doesn't matter if they are either deceivers or self-deceived. Either way, if you can show them what it is that they do in such a way that it's no longer possible to hide its true character, you put the question back to them. If this is politics, if this is the power of the state, how can you live with it? It was, in many ways, a completely different understanding of politics than anything I've been talking about so far. All of the authors, all of the thinkers that I've discussed, have accepted that at the heart of political life, there has to be some form of coercion. One of the things that Gandhi rejected in rejecting the doubleness of the modern state was the idea that coercion can coexist with any higher or nobler ideals and not contaminate them. He didn't think it was possible to separate out the means and the ends. So you couldn't, for instance, have terror in the name of peace, or fear to drive out fear, or force to produce security and order, because the means will contaminate the ends, and the terror or the fear or the force will always be present in whatever it is that they produce. So the only genuine, sustainable forms of political change have to make sure that the means match the ends. And if the ends are independence, autonomy, both for a society and for the individuals who live in it, then the means have to reflect independence and autonomy, both on the part of the movement and the individuals who make up that movement. People have to do it for themselves, and they have to do it in a way that does not replicate 
the thing that they're trying to replace. So passive resistance means allowing the state to do its worst and accepting it, welcoming it, in some respects, bringing it onto yourself in order to show it for what it is. And Gandhi came to embody that kind of politics. And in embodying it, both in his own life, through hunger strikes, through protests, through marches, in which he put his own body on the line, in which he was himself oppressed, but in which his followers were also oppressed, beaten, killed, arrested, jailed. He was also embodying a different kind of political representation. This was not leaderless politics. Gandhi was the leader of a movement. Gandhi was one of the most important political leaders of the 20th century. But this was not leadership by representing decisions on behalf of others, by making choices in the name of the people who have decided for whatever reason, no longer to make those choices themselves. This was representation in the form of living the life that you expect other people to live too. It was the literal embodiment of the movement. To be Gandhi and to represent meant to do what you expected other people to do in the hope that they would do what you showed yourself capable of doing. That is nothing like Hobbesian representation. That is nothing like parliamentary representation. That is nothing like our understanding of representation. There was also a deeply spiritual element to it, another word that could describe Gandhi's political thought that I don't think could describe the political thought of any of the other people I've talked about so far, is that it was holistic. And it was holistic way beyond politics. It didn't just try to integrate the different elements of political understanding. It didn't just try to integrate freedom and coercion. It tried to integrate the different elements of human experience. It tried to integrate nature and artifice. It tried to integrate a cosmic and a personal perspective. It had a deep understanding of spirituality behind it. It was not, as much modern politics is, about limiting the mysterious power of religion. It was about utilising it. For these reasons, it's sometimes thought that Gandhian politics is almost non-political. It's either above politics or it somehow never reaches the level of politics. It's too good for that. It's too pure for that. It was profoundly political. It was nothing, in some sense, but a political movement because it had a fundamental political goal, and the goal was Hind Swaraj, Indian independence. And it worked. If one test of a political movement is its effectiveness in achieving its goals, this was one of the most effective political movements of the modern age. The British not exclusively because of Gandhi. He was not sufficient, but he almost certainly was necessary. The British eventually, towards the end of his life, quit India. And they quit India after a decades-long campaign that included, wasn't limited to, but included widespread campaigns of passive resistance and civil disobedience, led by Gandhi, which did have the effect of revealing to the perpetrators of the oppression, just what it is they would have to do to retain their hold on power and ask them the question, put to them the question, whether it was worth it. It was extraordinarily effective and it also had its limits. It is political all the way through, 
but you can't do all politics through passive resistance. Not because politics has to be violent, but there are certain forms of violence that tend to overwhelm it, and Gandhi discovered that right at the end of his life. When independence was achieved, it also unleashed enormous amounts of violence, the violence surrounding partition, which Gandhi profoundly regretted, which he tried to stop by personal example. He embarked on his final hunger strike. He tried to use his own body as a kind of instrument or weapon against this violence, and it wasn't enough. At the same time, the state that was born after Indian independence was, for want of a better word, a Hobbesian state. That is, it conformed to the pattern of modern states in having at its disposal extreme instruments of coercion. It was there, in part, to keep the peace. It fought wars. It defended India and the idea of India against its enemies. And it embarked on the traditional modern state path of development, industrial production, and economic growth. Gandhi had a vision of a different kind of state, borrowing on some Western ideas, some modern, some ancient, and marrying them with some non-Western ideas to produce something new, not something hybrid, not something double, but a notion of a kind of politics which could be more local, could be more individual, could be more face-to-face, would be concentric, smaller communities feeding into larger ones, in which the representation would not be double, but would move up through the chains of communication and human experience. And it never happened. Didn't even come close. India is not currently that kind of state. But if Gandhian politics reached some of its limits towards the end of Gandhi's life and with the achievement of his political goals, it's also had a life of its own that's far outlasted Gandhi's own. Gandhi has been profoundly influential in many political movements in the second half of the 20th century. Gandhi was part of the inspiration for Martin Luther King and for his campaign of passive resistance and civil disobedience against Jim Crow in the American South. And it worked. Gandhi was, in part, one of the inspirations for Nelson Mandela. Mandela was not an advocate of non-violent politics. The ANC, the political movement to which Mandela belonged, was, among other things, willing to use violence against its oppressors. But when Mandela was jailed, one of the lessons that he took from Gandhi was that it really matters how you accept your punishment. And if you can accept it with a kind of dignity, not welcome it, not bring it on yourselves, you can resist it. But when it comes, if you can endure it in a way that shows your oppressors just what it is that they're doing to you, that reveals the true nature of the power that you are facing, you can win. And Mandela did win, and he won in part because of the ways in which he lived his punishment. Gandhi is part of the inspiration behind more recent movements of civil disobedience, Occupy Wall Street, Extinction Rebellion. Gandhi is on T-shirts. His words are on websites. It's not trivial. There is a deep connection throughout the world between movements that try to use the power of popular protest in the name of peace against the state and against the social and economic systems that the state upholds. 
But as you move through that story, you also get to see the limits of Gandhian politics. It doesn't always work. One way to try to describe how and why it does, and sometimes doesn't work, is to say that the fundamental political relationships that underpin successful campaigns of civil disobedience are three-way, not two-way. So passive resistance is not just about the relationship between the oppressed and their oppressors. It's not just about what happens when a group of people march on a line of policemen, confront those policemen, not with arms, but just with their bodily presence, and then, if necessary, invite the police to attack them. There's a third party in all successful campaigns of civil disobedience, and those are the watchers or the audience. So there are the oppressors, there are the oppressed, and there are the people looking on. And it's often the people who are looking on who are the crucial actors. They are the ones whose minds have to be changed. What is being revealed is not necessarily to the oppressors that they are oppressors, because they may know that. And in fact, at a certain point, if they are standing there with guns or sticks or dogs, they must know that. You have to be really self-deceived not to know that when you're beating someone with a stick, what you are doing is using oppressive physical force. But there are often, particularly in the complex representative relationships of modern states, all sorts of people in whose name this is being done. People who would not like to think that they are involved in the business of raw physical coercion, who would not like to think that their political order is ultimately built on a lie, because the lie is, it's not actually about the rule of law. It's not actually about rights and benefits and freedoms. It's just about who has the stick and who's willing to use it. And those people, the watchers on, the people in whose name it's being done, can be shamed, can be shocked, can be forced to face up to the fact that their comfortable illusions do not stand up when people march peacefully in the face of people with guns and sticks and dogs. In the case of Gandhi and the British, it was in part to try and shock the British in India, but it was at least as much to shock the British in Britain, to shock the people in whose name this empire was being ruled, on whose behalf these choices were being made, and to let them know that the only way that they could sustain this rule would be to give up on the lie, and to ask them if they were willing to sustain that. In the case of Martin Luther King and his campaign against racial oppression in the American South, it was only in part designed to shame people in the South and to make them realise just what it is that they had brought into being by allowing this system to survive for decades. Only in part because, again, it seems unlikely that that many of them were deceived. To live in that system, to run it, to operate it, is probably to know how it works. Martin Luther King's campaign was also designed to let people in the American North know what kind of country they lived in, because it was one country, at least in theory, at least on paper, if not in practice. And people in the North, people who voted in presidential and congressional elections alongside or within the same state as people from the South, they were in part responsible for this order persisting too. And the pictures that came from the American South that were broadcast on television of just what 
was necessary to uphold that form of racial segregationist order were so powerful because of the shame that they produced in watchers in the North. In the case of Nelson Mandela, his dignity was powerful in South Africa for his followers, but it was most powerful in the international community. It was global opinion. It was us watching on. People in the United States or in Europe, people who might have thought that the apartheid regime didn't have much to do with them. The campaign to free Nelson Mandela, which became a global campaign and which was inspired by his character and his dignity, made people outside of South Africa feel the shame. And in the end, the pressure of the watchers can be the thing that moves the oppressors, doesn't move them in feeling, it moves them in practice. They can't withstand it. They have too much to lose. But Occupy Wall Street and Extinction Rebellion show that that three-way relationship is quite hard to sustain as the movement becomes broader, as the goals become wider. Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela wanted to overturn an oppressive political order and replace it with something that for the people who had to live under it was emancipation. What does Occupy Wall Street want? I'm not sure. It wants lots of things. It did want lots of things and it continues to want lots of things, including perhaps an end not just to a particular political order, but an entire social and economic system. And in Occupy Wall Street, who are the three parties here? Who are the oppressors? Who are the oppressed? Who is the audience? Again, it's not entirely clear. The oppressors are the police who clear the squares. The oppressors are the people with sticks or dogs who move people on. But the target was originally Wall Street. So it's Wall Street, or it's the police, or maybe it's both. And then the audience is also Wall Street. But then the audience is the wider public, first of all in the United States, then around the world. But the message of Occupy Wall Street was, we are the 99%, that the people who were doing the occupying were doing it on behalf of everyone else, because everyone else belongs to the class of the oppressed. So the audience are the oppressed, and the oppressed are the audience. And that should make the movement more powerful, perhaps. But actually, I think as a form of politics, it makes it much more diffuse, unless you can separate out the oppressed, the oppressors, and the audience. Passive resistance finds it much harder to achieve its goals. The same, I think, is true of Extinction Rebellion. The movement is so broad, the goals are so broad, the targets are so broad. Who are the oppressors? Who are the oppressed? Sometimes it feels like, in the face of climate change, we're all responsible. Sometimes it feels like it's a fairly narrowly defined group of bad businesses and bad actors and bad governments. And the audience is whom? Everyone? Some people? Governments against corporations? Who, when it comes to the end of the world, is meant to move whom to act? Who is meant to feel the shame and who is meant to be moved by it? I'm not saying that these things are impossible. I'm not saying that they're not necessary. But as a model of politics, passive resistance 
becomes harder to achieve, the broader the goals, the wider the groups of people who are caught up in it, and the harder it is to tell who is playing which part. When I talked about Tocqueville, I mentioned his seeming prophetic powers, when he talked about the coming age in which the great division would be between America as a representative of democracy and Russia as a representative of something more autocratic. And I said that now, if we recast that, we might say that the great confrontation was between America and China. But perhaps the great question of the 21st century is not going to be America or China. Perhaps it's going to be India or China. The two most populous nations on earth, each with more than a billion people, each with enormous productive and potential political power. And there is an irony, because each of them also has a kind of intellectual founding myth, which is nothing like the state that they become. Gandhi is still, in many respects, a kind of father figure in India for the Indian nation and the Indian state. He is revered, his name is invoked, his example is easily given and hard to gainsay. And yet India is not a Gandhian state at all. India is a Hobbesian state. China and the Chinese Communist Party, and it is still called, weirdly, the Chinese Communist Party, will also invoke its founding fathers, and its founding fathers, as well as Mao, are Marx and Engels, less so Lenin. Marx and Engels will still be talked about in China as though their ideas and their thought lay somewhere deep in the background of this state. But this is not a Marxist state. This is a Hobbesian state. And both of them are capitalist states. In that sense, they are exemplary Hobbesian states. They are double all the way through. Gandhi and nothing like Gandhi. Marx and Engels and nothing like Marx and Engels. But in the background of modern politics, what Marx and Engels and Gandhi represent never quite go away. The possibility of doing it differently, of complete transformation, radical change, the overturning, the uncompromising overturning of this double, mechanical, artificial life with its convenience and its security and its equality and its lack of soul. And now we're living through a crisis, a great crisis, which again allows people to think about ways in which politics might be done differently. And this crisis, the crisis of a pandemic, exists in the shadow of another crisis, the crisis of climate change, which may be the greatest crisis of all. We also live in an age of crises of capitalism, when the financial system seems to totter, and we wonder what will hold it together. And so maybe we reach for Marx and Engels, and the Communist Manifesto. But we could also reach for Gandhi, and Hind Swaraj, and Gandhi's example through his life, as well as through his work. And Gandhi's example, in some ways, is the one that does stand in the background of 21st century crises. The possibility of something more holistic, the possibility of something more individualistic, the possibility of something in which people are able to be truer to themselves. The states that act on our behalf are all still Hobbesian states. Gandhi didn't change that. 
but Gandhi does always suggest the possibility that there might be a way of doing it differently. To find out where you can read Hind Swaraj and other pieces of writing coming out of today's episode, please look to our show notes, which you can get with your podcast download. In the next episode, it's all change again. We hear about Max Weber on political leadership in the terrible aftermath of the First World War.